you take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to John's Gospel. Much to the surprise of some of you, I can pull out of Luke on, on occasion and preach from something else. I'm not so entrenched in my ruts that I won't move. And uh, just in light of what we consider today on this, what's designated as Easter Sunday, I know some have something of an aversion for even using that word, and I'm not particularly fond of it, but just for the sake of what we, people know what we're talking about, I'll, I will use the word. But just reminded of the reality of Jesus laying down His life. Of course, that's fresh upon us too, isn't it? There is a laying down of a life, there is a resurrection. So I want us to give some thought to all of that today. So this morning we're going to be looking at John chapter 10, a few verses from John 10. Now the first portion of this chapter, Jesus distinguishes between a shepherd of a, of a, of a flock of sheep... And one who would be considered as a thief or a robber. In verse 1, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. And so he makes this distinction in these first few verses here that there are those who are truly, there is one, in fact, who is truly the shepherd of the sheep. But there are those who would come in as thieves and robbers. And the context would indicate that what Jesus is speaking of here would be those, the Pharisees, the the Sadducees, the self-appointed leaders of Jesus' day who were absolutely unfit to serve as shepherds of God's sheep. But Jesus continues in this section by identifying himself in verses 7 and 9, not here as the shepherd yet, but even as the door as the way of entry into the sheepfold of God, that if one would come and be a part of the people of God, you must come through Jesus Christ. He is the only way unto salvation. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. So the words of Jesus. And then in verse 11 and following, which is where we're going to be considering this morning for our text, Jesus identifies Himself as that good shepherd. Now, what's the purpose here? Why is Jesus speaking of this, of himself as the good shepherd here? And I think we can conclude that it's basically, maybe diverse, but the idea would be to bring comfort, to bring assurance, to bring joy for his disciples and for his people. And so we're going to read verses 11 through 18 this morning and considering Jesus and his life laid down, but also his life taken back up. John chapter 10, verse 11 through 18. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. Even as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life. For the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. 
I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice. And they will become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. One needs, if we need a clear indication or a clear reminder to us of just how horrible is the nature and the consequences of sin, we do not have to look any further than what would have transpired in what we call this Passion Week and the events that transpired between Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem to His crucifixion and His resurrection the next weekend. It's quite a series of events that reveal to us something of the human heart, doesn't it? Something of what it is to live in a fallen world. Something of how horrendous a consequence Something of how horrendous in nature sin really is. That one such as Jesus, one who is God Himself, but one who even lived among men as He lived, would be hated, would be despised, would be crucified. And I suppose that it's only in a fallen world such as we live that there could be such a paradoxical mix and a contrast of emotions. And here speaking of the disciples and thinking also of us, even as the people of God today, as we've considered in this past week the events that transpired in the week of Jesus' passion, the week of His suffering, what a mix of emotion it brings to our minds and to our hearts. On the one hand, there's a sense of, of great Grief and sorrow at the sufferings that are inflicted upon our Lord. Doesn't as as we read through the gospel accounts of what Jesus endured. If we take the time to stop and to consider, take the time and think about what's transpiring. Think about who it's being committed against, but think about why Jesus is going through this. There's plenty there, isn't there, to move us, to move our hearts. You know, and sadly, again, I must confess my own guilt that so many times I read through the through the accounts of the of the, the last week of Jesus' ministry before his crucifixion, and and again, so often, so unmoved, unmoved by what is taking place and remind, remembering that this is this is Jesus Christ my lord my god my savior my delight the treasure of my heart who is enduring this thing and it's because of his love for me his love for us as his people what a reminder to us of how horrendous sin must be if it requires the death of Christ to deliver us. So on the one hand, there is this sense of grief and sorrow at what has been inflicted upon Jesus for us. But on the other hand, 
there is the height of rejoicing and enjoy in the success of what Jesus has done. And it's brought to its fullest picture to us in the reality of the resurrection of Jesus. What great joy comes to our hearts and to our minds when we think about that Jesus Christ rose victorious. He conquered all of His, all of our enemies. He conquered the enemy of death. He conquered the enemy of sin. He conquered the enemies of of Satan and the demons of hell, all those that rise up against Him have been defeated. And what a joy that is to us because those are our enemies likewise. There's joy there, isn't there? And so we have this, this mix of, on the one hand, reason for great grief and sorrow and anguish. Yet on the other hand, we can be moved so quickly in thinking of the resurrection to, to great joy. For what's transpired and what the resurrection of Jesus Christ means for us. What is certain and secured for us because that tomb is empty. There's reason for joy in that. And you know, it's right and good to think and to meditate deeply upon Jesus' suffering. It's good. And we've thought about that even as we've had communion and reminded of the hymn that we often sing smitten, stricken, and afflicted, those who think lightly of sin, come and consider. Come and consider. But today, we're going to focus on the joy. Today, this is the, this is the day of celebration, isn't it? As we come together each Lord's Day, it's the day of joy, of, of celebrating the risen Christ. And we're going to focus upon that joy, the joy of God's people in their shepherd. Do you joy in your shepherd? Do you joy in Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your good shepherd? And in our text here, in John chapter 10, this paradox of of suffering and joy, of grief and joy. It's not lost, is it? Because here, the joy that, that is ours is in this. As it's emphasized in this text, the joy that is ours is in His life being laid down. There's joy in that. And that's where I want us to to dwell today as we think about this text, Jesus as our good shepherd and finding our joy in His laying down of His life. So how can I find joy in Jesus laying down His life? That brings tears to my eyes. That brings sadness upon my heart. How is there any joy in my heart in Jesus laying down His life? I can see the joy of the resurrection. But is there joy in this laying down? And there is. And that's what I want us to consider Why is our joy in our Savior laying down His life? First of all, we see His his laying down His life, His compassionate action. His compassionate action. What's one of the greatest joys that we can experience? Think about it for a minute. What's one of the greatest joys? Something that brings great joy to your own heart and your own experience. It'd be something, may not be the only thing, but when someone comes to our defense or to our rescue, that brings to us a great sense of joy, doesn't it? You know, if we can see the end of the line, we can't see the light at the end of the tunnel. That's a pastor back in, in uh, 
today. He gave me a note one Sunday morning, put it on my desk, and this was after one of those painful deacons meetings, and he put this note on my desk, and it said, the light at the end of the tunnel has been temporarily turned out. <laughs> I said, yeah, that's the way I feel. <laughs> and, you know, we get to those places where we feel like that there's no light at the end of the tunnel, but something Someone steps in on our behalf. They, they intervene for us and they, they rescue and they deliver. And the experience is a great sense of joy. Now, we experience that to some degree vicariously, don't we? Maybe in watching a good movie. You know, why are these superhero movies so popular? We like heroes. We like someone who can step in just in the nick of time and save the world. And if you're Superman and you're late, you can fly around the world backwards and reverse everything. We love that. Maybe it's in the reading of a novel. I'm not much of a novel reader, but I know some of you are. And you love these novels. But what makes it so enticing is there, there's the hero. There's that one who steps in and they deliver it. And you, you experience it somewhat vicariously. I mean, let's face it. You're sitting there watching a the movie or you're reading that book. You just don't read it and think, oh, that's good. Do you? And sometimes I've been to to a movie and, you know, the hero steps in and does his work and, and the crowd there breaks into applause. Yay! Because there's great joy. You know, there's a vicarious experience of the joy that's brought into our hearts because someone has stepped in, in that case, on behalf of someone else. But, you know, there is no rescue that compares to the rescue that Jesus has wrought for us. Is there? There is no rescue like unto that one. What Jesus has done for His people. Verse 11, Jesus says this, I am the Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd lays down His life for His Sheep. And he contrasts it in verse 12 with one who is a hired hand. He says in verse 12, he's a hired hand and he's not a shepherd. He doesn't have the shepherd's heart. He doesn't have the shepherd's investment. He doesn't have the shepherd's concern and care for the sheep. He's there as a hired hand to make a few dollars watching somebody else's flock. And in verse 12, he says, he's not the owner of the sheep. He sees the wolf coming. And what does he do? He leaves the sheep and flees. The wolf snatches them and scatters them. Why does he flee? Because his first concern is his own well-being. He has an interest. It's himself. Let the sheep take care of themselves. I'm getting out of here. So he flees because he is a hired hand. He has no investment here. He's not concerned about the helplessness of those sheep and how dependent they are upon him for protection and their own well-being. He's not concerned about that. He flees. But Jesus says that the mark of the good shepherd, verse 11 again, is the good shepherd lays down his life. The good shepherd is one who knows the dangers and the risks Of his work. He's willing to risk his life on any given day. There must be something of a sense of going out with the realization. Today may be the day that's required of me that I give up my life. 
know, we live with some some degree of expect or expectation of that mentality of a soldier, don't we? That a soldier who is in combat, there's the realization that any given day may be his last day. So there's a sense in which there's a laying down to the life as he prepares for that day's duties. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. It's not just a mental assent that today may be the day that I have to fight even unto death. No, but what Jesus is talking about here is the life is laid down. The life is given up. So the imagery here that we see in this picture that Jesus, as he describes himself as this shepherd and hence his people being sheep, it's an imagery of Jesus' compassion for his people. Jesus' love for his sheep. Because it's more than a mere possibility of Jesus having to lay down his life because the dangers may arise and he's compelled to face those dangers and to lay down his life. It's more than that. And this is where the imagery falls short. The picture here is Jesus understands the absolute necessity that he must give up his life. He must lay down his life for his sheep because the danger has already arisen. The danger of being ensnared by sin has already come and it has captured and apparently conquered. And then Jesus comes as this good shepherd and knowing that the only way to deliver His people from what has transpired through this work of sin, from our fall into sin, is to give Him give His life. Lay down His life for us. The claims of sin, of death, and of hell are countered only by a substitutionary death. He tells us in verse 18 that He lays it down on His own initiative. No one's taking it away from me. I lay it down on my own initiative. What's his motivation for such an action? Concern, compassion, love for his people. Love for his people. And his intimate knowledge of his own. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd and I know my own. I know them. They're not just a mass of humanity to me. I know them. I know their names. I know their frailties. I know their weakness. Most of all, I know their need of someone to work on their behalf. And only I can do that. What act of rescue, what act of deliverance that's rooted in love and compassion compares to that? What rescue has there ever been that can even begin to touch what Jesus has done for His people? And if that's not a reason for joy, 
then the problem's with us, isn't it? If there's not a sense in my heart of all that Christ has done, what He has accomplished for me, because He loves me. There's something wrong with this heart. That what Christ has done is an act of compassion. It's not an act of compulsion. It is compassion. No one takes His life. I lay it down to my own initiative. So there is... No shepherd like our shepherd. There is no love like his love. How great he is in his compassion. How great are his acts. How great is his work of salvation. So that in any day, in any circumstance, I can find joy in this. Christ loves me. And he has demonstrated that love by laying down his life for me. Giving up his life for me. Why else might we joy in our Savior? It is this. The laying down of His life. It was His commissioned authority. What is it? What is it that makes Jesus' death meaningful? What is it that makes Jesus' death more significant, more meaningful than the death of, of anyone else? Well, Jesus tells us in verse 18, as he speaks there of laying down his life, no one is taking it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. Then he says, I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my father. What's he saying here? It's this. That Jesus' sacrifice, Jesus' death is effective and it is meaningful to anyone other than Himself because it is by divine commission. He has been commissioned. He has been sent by God the Father to accomplish a work. So the meaning, His death finds meaning because He is walking in the path of of one who is walking in obedience to His Father, commissioned by God the Father to do this task. So He says there, I have, in verse 18, I have authority to lay it down. What's He saying there? I have authority to lay my life down. He has divine authority from the Father, the Heavenly Father, to offer Himself in place of His people for the sins committed against God. Listen. If God is the offended party in our sin, and He is, then only God is able to set down the terms to bring reconciliation between Himself and sinful men. And so what He has done is He has commissioned His Son and He has commissioned Him, given Him the authority to lay down His life on behalf of someone else. That the death of Jesus was not for His own sins, but it was for the sins of His people. And He could only have that authority as given to Him, of course, by God the Father. And even His own authority is God the Son. But He was on a divine commission here. So there's great joy in knowing that 
that God the Father has in, has commissioned him. That when we read about Jesus' work of redemption, that this is more than a more than a well intentioned attempt to appease an offended deity. That's not what this is. This isn't the effort of a of a good man, of a righteous man, to do something no man's ever thought of doing and saying, I will lay down my life for these other people. You can't do that. Even if there were a righteous man, which there not and can't be, but even if there were, he could die for no more sins than one person. So God sent His Son. Jesus said, I have authority to lay down my life. I have authority that my life be laid down for the sake in the place of others, of the, in the place of my people. So Jesus is acting here as an act of obedience that was initiated by God Himself. Bottom line is this. Salvation is of God from beginning to end. It was at God's initiative that Christ came. Not at man's. We were not storming heaven pleading for someone to come on our behalf. We were not pleading for a mediator. No. Blind in our sin. Blind in our arrogance against God. But God graciously sends His Son. God sends His Son and says, Your death, your death will be for the death of many. You have that authority. He says, I have authority to lay it down. But He also says... I have authority to take it up again. I have authority to take my life up again. He has divine authority to say by His resurrection, and here we get to the heart of the resurrection, by Jesus rising from the dead, Acting with the authority entrusted to him, he is saying this God's wrath against the sins of men is fully satisfied. And only God can say that. Only God can say, Your sins are forgiven, your sins are paid for. So when Jesus says, I have the authority to take my life up again, speaking of his resurrection, he is saying, I have the authority to say sin has been dealt. It's fatal blow. It's done. There's the essence of the resurrection. That God has been propitiated. That God has been Satisfied, his wrath has been satisfied. The required payment for sin has been fully met in the death of Jesus Christ. The sins of his people placed on him. The death penalty inflicted. Against Him as the one who bears our sins. And God is satisfied. See, Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection is for the benefit of His people. And it only works because it's God's work. It's not ours. 
He has the authority to lay down his life as a substitution for the, for the life of us, for the sins of others, and authority to take it up to be able to say by that resurrection, it's done. Payment for sin has been met. It is done. God the Father is satisfied. Not that God Himself could dare make a statement like that on behalf of God. So our joy is in this. This is our joy. Is that, and we consider that Jesus laying down His life. Our joy is in this. That God has commissioned the Son to lay down His life as a substitution for His people. We could not bear the sins of our, of our, the consequence of our sins. To do so would be an eternity in hell and suffering. But God has sent His Son to secure our salvation so that our sins, our offenses against God are satisfactorily paid for. And again, because the provision has originated from God Himself, not from us. No, we've not come to God saying, Lord, will this do? If I do this for you, will this do? If I sacrifice this, will this do? Is this enough? God has instead sent His Son and said, This, my Son, dying for the sins of my people, that and that alone will do. That alone is sufficient. So Jesus, commissioned by God the Father to do His work, I have authority to lay down my life. I have authority to take it up again. And finally we see the joy in our shepherd because of his completed accomplishments. So when Jesus speaks here of what he's doing, he speaks here in very certain and very confident terms. He says in verse 17, I laid down my life so that I may take it again. Verse 18, I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. See, there's no concern. What if something goes wrong here? What if I enter into the grave and there is no resurrection? Jesus has always spoken in certain terms, hasn't He? As He spoke to His disciples, even on the three occasions before He entered Jerusalem, the three occasions He spoke to His disciples about what was going to transpire. Always spoke with confidence. This is what's going to happen. This is what I'm going to endure. And then began to speak over the last occasions of, and I'll be raised again on the third day. Speaking with such confidence. No possibility that death would prove too strong of a force. But if death is the required penalty for sin, and it is, if death is the required penalty for sin, and Jesus is dying for sin then by what right does He take His life up again? The requirement for sin is death. It doesn't say anything. You die and then you rise again. The soul that sins, it shall die. So if the requirement 
for sin is death, and Jesus' death was substitutionary, paying for our sins, then by what right does He take His life up again? And the Scripture answers that. It tells us by the fact that He is God, and He is the possessor of an indestructible life. He paid for the sins of men, but He was God. The marvel of this one who is both man and God and and as well as we articulate this, these two natures in Christ in our confession of, of being man and being God, there's still a great deal of mystery of how all that works out. But we know this, that He died taking the penalties of, of men. As he, and He could do that because He was a man, but the grave could not hold Him because He was God. The power of an indestructible life. Could not hold him. But also by virtue of the fact that God was satisfied. The sins committed against God were sins of men, but the sin bearer was God and man. He was the God man, and death had overstepped its bounds. Because it wasn't just taking a man, it was taking God. And Jesus says, Time's up. It's over. It is finished. Death is conquered. He speaks here with such certainty of what he has accomplished. What is accomplished? The salvation of his people. I laid down my life. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And it's not a waste. It accomplishes what He desires in His people. And even in verse 16, He says, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will hear My voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. And for those of us who are are not blood descendants of Abraham, that's good news, isn't it? There it is. That's us. I have... Other sheep, which are not of this fold. I must bring them. And this is what he says again. They will hear my voice. They will become one flock with one shepherd. The seeking and the saving shepherd. He speaks of his work among all the nations and the certainty that they will be brought in. I must, in verse 16, I have other sheep, I must bring them also. I must do it. I must bring them. And they will hear my voice. So there's more here than the potential offering of salvation, but there is a sure and a certain salvation here. This is the work of our, of our Savior. He brings salvation, not just an extended offer. Here's my offer of salvation, take it if you will. But He is a mighty, He is a powerful Savior that saves men and makes those who are unwilling, willing. Changing the heart. Converting. Regenerating. So our joy is a sure is is in this it is a sure and a certain salvation that Jesus brings it is certain because it is Jesus 
Jesus the Christ, Jesus who is God, is the one who seeks and saves. It is certain because He accomplishes all of His good pleasure. It is certain because He has purposed before creation that He would save His people. It's done. Sure salvation. If we get a hold of that, there's a great deal of liberty, but there's a great deal of joy. One of the greatest struggles I experienced in my in my life as a young believer was was just trying to figure out if I had done just right to be saved. You know, had, had I repented sufficiently? Had I prayed the right prayer? Had I said the right words? And all these things. And finally, as I began to study the scripture, I began to see that's not salvation. Salvation is all. It's not all about me. Salvation is all about what Christ has done, what He accomplishes. And it's very refreshing. Very freeing. He has accomplished this work. His work of salvation is sure. Even we saw it, just the words to, to Joseph. The announcement of Jesus coming. He's going to call His name Jesus for He will, He shall save His people from their sins. This is our Savior. So this is our joy, people. The joy and consideration of a life laid down for us. Yes, there's the, there's the sense, and we look at that, that Christ has laid down His life. And there's a sense in that of a sorrow and a sense of grief. But there is also this greater sense of joy in that, of knowing that, that He has laid down His life as an act of love and compassion for me. He's not indifferent to us. It's not that He's made some type of an offer and said, do what you will with this thing. He has done it as an act of love. The Good Shepherd lays down His life for His sheep. And that He has acted in divine commission. This is God's work. This is God's plan. This isn't, this isn't man coming up with something that we hope will work out. Let me tell you something. We would have never come up with anything like this. That God would lay down His life for His people to pay for the sins committed by them against Him. He is laying down His life for their sins. Their sins they've committed against Him. I don't think so. I don't think we think that way. And first of all, we're not convinced that our sins are that vile, are we? Apart from the grace of God, we think, hey, it's not that bad. Do a few good things, a few bad things. Hope the scales tip. That's a mentality. This is God's work of salvation, that Jesus acted by divine commission. I have authority to, take, to lay my life down as a substitute for my people. God has given me that authority. God the Father has given me that authority. I have the authority to raise it up again. To say... God is fully satisfied. And the joy of knowing that what Jesus has done, it is completed. It is a complete work of salvation. It's not that God's done His 99%. Let's do our 1%. It is done. It's done. I know my sheep. They know They know me. I must bring them in. They will hear my voice and they know me. So there's the cause of our joy. 
There is joy in this resurrection. There is joy in this laying down of a life. It's mixed. But I tell you, I can't think of anything, any greater joy of knowing that someone has come to my rescue as Jesus Christ has. When He calls for joy, folks, rejoice and joy in your Savior laying down His life Taking it up again. Rejoice in the resurrected Christ today. Rejoice in the Christ who has been exalted to the right hand of God the Father. Rejoice in your Christ who is there now on your behalf. Your advocate with God the Father. Great joy. Great reason for joy in our shepherd. Is there not? Let's be a people who find our joy today in Him. I just have to tell you, I spent too many joyless, joyless minutes and moments and days because I try to find my joy in everything else, and it's just not there. But for coming, willing to come and to say, Lord, of all you've done, if nothing, if nothing else be as I wish it were or as I think it ought to be, this is sure. Christ has laid down his life and he has raised, taken it up again on my behalf. Therefore, I have peace with God. There is all that matters. There is cause for joy. Just joy in Him today. Father, we thank You for Your work of kindness to us. Oh Lord, we marvel at this salvation. And yet we confess that we marvel too little. We thank You, Lord Jesus, that You are, even in the analogy You have given, You are the Good Shepherd. Thank You that You've laid down Your life for us. And thank you that you did it as an act of love. Not at the compulsion of your enemies. Not at the decree of Pilate. But by the highest decree of God the Father. And we thank you, O Lord Jesus, that you have taken it back up. We thank you that the Christ that we serve today, that Jesus Christ lives now. Even as we've prayed earlier, Lord, we live in anticipation of that day in which you shall come. You shall return in all of your splendor and all of your glory. And your kingdom be established once and for all. And Lord, we pray for grace today. To be a true and visible expression of the joy that your people ought to have. Lord, forgive us. Forgive us for being so consumed with lesser things. Things that will not bring joy. With joy stealers. And may we be consumed with the life that is ours in Christ and what He has done for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.